transforming intelligence intelligence for a regular war on this episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the host or guest and should not be interpreted as statement of fact. Independent fact checking and corrections are encouraged. This episode is brought to you by Funwise Capital. Funwise Capital is a business lender matching platform. Avoid the mystery of one-sided deals. Connect with Funwise to get the very best funding you can qualify for fast. You can apply online in 60 seconds or less, and there's no effect to your credit to see how much you can get. It's easy. Use the funding for anything you need to start or grow your business. You did hear me correctly. I did say start or grow your business. If you don't have a business yet, but you got a solid business plan, they can help you get funding. Get the best funding you can qualify for. Their strategic lender matching platform searches through hundreds of lenders to find the very best possible option for your unique situation. They have hundreds of five-star reviews on Google, Trustpilot, and Facebook, and an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau. They provide unsecured lines of credit at 0% interest for 9 to 15 months. Unsecured term loans, loans based on income, short-term gap funding, and bridge loans. They work with real estate, startups like I already mentioned, franchises, restaurants, any kind of business, any kind of project. To get started, it's really easy. Just go to apply.funwise.com slash minddog. That's apply.funwise.com slash minddog. Get money for your business now. Apply.funwise.com slash minddog. Welcome, my friends, to yet another episode of the Mind Dog TV podcast. I'm Matt Napo. Thanks for coming. It's great to have you here, as always. We're going to talk about uh, the ever state, uh, ever changing state of war. Man, I'm still uh, struggling. Thank you very much for all the concern cards and letters and all the stuff about my health. I am uh, slowly but surely recovering a little bit, but still a bit under the weather. And I appreciate everybody being here. Um, if you're one of the people who've listened to my morning show uh, or even lately uh, the e- evening programs since the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. You've heard me talking about how war has has been changing and the idea of war and how you win a war. And, you know, nations are not always fighting nations. Often they're fighting people, people in mindsets. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight uh, in context of uh, post 9-11 war and then probably including some of uh, what's going on as far as um, uh, the intelligence surrounding the Russian-Ukraine invasion and all that kind of stuff. Uh, Richard H. Schultz, Jr., Ph.D., is a lead E. Derrick's professor of international politics and director of the International Security Studies Program at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. He is the author of several books, many, 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 many books, it should say, including uh, The Marines uh, Take Ambar, A Four-Year Fight Against Al-Qaeda, and uh, with Andrea J. Du, Insurgents, Terrorists and Militias, The Warriors of uh, Contemporary Combat. His latest book is Transforming U.S. Intelligence for Irregular War, and he's here tonight to talk about that. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome you into the Mind Dog TV podcast, uh, Dr. Richard Schultz. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. And I hope you feel better. Uh, thank you. I'm, I'm I'm struggling, but I'm getting there. Let me bring up uh, the URL to your uh, website before we get started here. So it's scrolling in the bottom. It's in the description for people. So keep that in mind uh, as we move along here. Now, I uh, in the intro, I mentioned briefly that I've been talking about this. I'm like a broken record about I don't understand um, what war means anymore because war used to be a real estate game. It used to be all about taking a piece of real estate and holding it. It doesn't seem like in my lifetime that is true anymore. And especially uh, in, in the last oh, 24, 22 years, 23 years, I guess, 22, 22 years or 21 years since 9-11, uh, things have changed dramatically. So 
first of all, let's let's start with why did you write this book and who did you write this book for? Well, I I had a lot of um, engagement with special operations forces um, because of um, I'm a senior fellow with Special Operations Command, and um, after 9/11, of course, as a professor who runs a security studies program, war had really changed now. I would argue that it was changing before 9-11. We just didn't recognize it because our military and our security community had for quite a long time thought about war in the way you just said. It was about real estate and, and denying real estate. So if you think about the whole Cold War, it was about preventing the Russians from moving further west. And we did that with conventional forces, and we convinced them they couldn't win a conventional war against NATO. So NATO, uh, Russia goes away, Soviet Union goes away. And in the 90s, you could see, I think, what was coming uh, and became prominent after 9-11. And that is the war was going to be conducted against states by extremist groups. And those extremist groups were going to be motivated by different belief systems. In the 90s, you know, you had ethno-nationalism in places like the Balkans. Um, but you also had this emerging Salafi jihadism. And we didn't pay a lot of attention to it. Um, in fact, I uh, after right after 9-11... I did a study for the Department of Defense on why we didn't attack Al-Qaeda before 9-11. And I called it showstoppers. So anyway, war now is these armed groups, um, but they're different than, let's say, the armed groups of the Vietnam era. Because now they're empowered by information tools and they're able to develop global networks, and it's a much bigger challenge. So I wanted to see um, how we addressed that challenge. And um, the place where we addressed it first, and, and, and I think very successfully, was against an organization called Al-Qaeda in Iraq. And we pitted against them our best, JSOC. Wow. Uh, I want to uh, stop you there for a second because now I've ordered the book on Amazon and I, I, it's not like I'm tracking your sales or anything, but when I ordered the book, there were more copies than are today. I just looked at it again and it was like, there were only seven available. So the book is selling. So the question is, and maybe this is a silly question. Maybe it's just the, the uh, fevers talking, but it seems like this is a book for military people, people who are involved in government affairs, people who are involved, uh, involved in the military, but it seems to be selling pretty well. So obviously there's interest in, in the public sector. Now, but can I, is there anything I can do at, at, from the public sector with the information I'm going to get from that book? Well, I think that what that book tells you is that uh, intelligence is changing. And in the organization I studied um, called JSOC, you, you know it, um, C, the SEAL Team 6, Delta Force, all of them, they deployed as this specialized task force, was headed by one of our smartest generals, Stanley McChrystal. And, um, but they, they had a way of doing business that wasn't working against al-Qaeda. So the story is how they transformed themselves. And one of the things they did in transforming themselves is that they learned how to deal with big data. They were collecting tremendous amounts of data, but they didn't know how to use it. And part of the story is how they transformed themselves to be able to mine that big data to find al-Qaeda networks. So it's a really interesting story of technological innovation in war. Right. And I think that's why, you know, there's a, there's attention to it because now 
what they started doing with big data, we're now adding to it the ability to use artificial intelligence to mine that data. Right. And I've, I've, I've just about finished a study for the Pentagon on the first major attempt to use artificial intelligence in war targeting um, in, in 2017, 18, 19, 20. It's kind of, uh, it's going to get confusing here when we start talking about artificial intelligence and we talk about intelligence because artificial intelligence is robotics and, and things like that and, and machines becoming intelligent. When we talk about intelligence, we're talking about information gathering. Right. right. So, right. What if you're gathering so much information that you can, you don't have enough people to go through it right that, that so, so it, you 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 develop algorithms and those algorithms can be trained to look for things of interest and in 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 the first iteration of this they were looking for the things of interest they were looking for were al qaeda camps al qaeda operations and, and, and specific geographical locations. And they were collecting tremendous amount of imagery in the form of full motion video. But they had so much full motion video as in 2012, they had so much full motion video that it would have taken someone 37 years to watch it. So how are you going to find things in all that video? Right. That this is uh, this is the problem. So even with the artificial intelligence scanning through the data and, and video and all the kinds of data that there are, is it is it an achievable uh, goal to think that we could stay ahead of of where where the enemy, the, whichever that enemy happens to be, is, is planning on going next? Yeah, we have to. And I would say that we're in a, an artificial intelligence arms race. And, and and it's with the Chinese. It's not with the Russians. It's with the Chinese. And, it, well, no? that's uh, the question I was going to ask. You kind of uh, got to the point of it pretty quickly. Is is we are in an uh, intelligence arms race or artificial intelligence arms race and analyzing data arms race. But uh, China and I, I would understand that China is is, is what and this kind of a double narrative on, on the whole China thing. They're too far uh, ahead of us that we could never keep up or they're not a real threat. And <laughs> both of those seem counter counter to, you know, uh, common sense. But I would think that even the, the, States that we were we were just got out of wars with Iraq and, and Afghanistan are still, um, they have some capabilities in those areas. Do they not? Well, so there's still um, the problem of making sure that ISIS doesn't rise from the ashes. Okay. Now, we, we made this mistake. when uh, in, in The story of my book is how Task Force 714 reduced al-Qaeda in Iraq to um, a pretty ineffective organization by 2009-10. We withdrew from Iraq. Al-Qaeda in Iraq reemerged, recreated itself, and became ISIS. Right. See? So now we've we knocked ISIS out of out of power in, in you know, they were no longer a caliphate. We weakened them tremendously. But they could reemerge. So one of our missions has to be to make sure that they can't rebuild themselves. And this is where um, you can use these new technologies to keep an eye on them. And for instance, when they get a new leader, after we killed Baghdadi, they got a new leader and we just got him about uh, two or three, four months ago, if you remember right. that operation in Syria. So. You know, those are things that, that we still have to do in this irregular battlefield, but we have a new battlefield. 
And that new battlefield is against what we call in, in, in we call them peer competitors. And one of them's Russia. And and it's it I would speculate that we're using these new intelligence capabilities to help the Ukrainians find the right targets. And one of the reasons why there's the Russians have suffered so greatly in terms of casualties, loss of equipment, and so on, and generals, they've lost eight generals, is because we are providing them with that intelligence. Now, where are we getting it? From all of this information that we're able to collect through signals and through imagery. Right. Now, uh, there is a challenge now. Well, I'm I'm sure there will, this challenge existed in 2003 when when this all started, but it it seems to have been amplified completely by um, social media, the the explosion of internet communications and and all that stuff, and we've seen in the last 20 years to the point where misinformation and bots and things like that that are putting out stuff to, intended to confuse even the artificial intelligence that you're putting out there. Am I wrong in that? Or because I'm a complete novice in this thing, but that would just seem to be uh, true. You're absolutely right. And the, the masters of this are the Russians. Now, why are they so, so good at it? You know, because they have a legacy of practicing disinformation that goes back to KGB, 19, right? yeah. 1917 and the Bolshevik Revolution. The, the communists were masters at disinformation. One of the things I did in the, the 1980s when I was a young academic, um, I worked with defectors out of the KGB who specialized in disinformation. So I learned a lot about this. Now, what's different today? The difference is that disinformation is now in the Facebook age. Right. And, and so the things that you're talking about, bots and all of that, um, these are, uh, tool, they've taken the old toolbox uh, disinformation techniques and they've modernized them with Facebook age tools. And, and they're very good at that. Right. But now, you know, Every time you, you know, the, the mouse avoids the mousetrap, you can rebuild it. And there are ways that we can manage this disinformation problem, process and unmask it at, at the speed that they're doing it. And that is where all of these new intelligence tools build around artificial intelligence, machine learning, use of training of algorithms and so on comes into play. Um, is the new paradigm for artificial intelligence uh, analyst, analysis, um, is that going to be more accurate? Because we've heard so many times where um, weapons of mass destruction was based on poor intelligence and, or, or faulty intelligence and that stuff. So is, is that going to decrease the amount of Decisions that are made on bad intelligence. I think what it, it's going to do is it's going to allow um, decision makers to stay ahead of adversaries if if you know if we develop it right. But let me just let me think about this. So the Ukraine's a pretty big place, right? right. And the Russians are deploying forces in the Ukraine. They're hiding some of those forces. They're, they're trying to outfox the Ukrainians. But we can watch every inch of the Ukraine 24-7 through various platforms, our own satellites, commercial satellites. And we can now we have all this data, all of this video and, and imagery we're collecting. We can then train algorithms to look for certain things. Right. You know, okay, we're, we're going to look for certain platforms. 
certain types, certain artillery pieces, certain types of airplanes, etc. And what we can tell the Ukrainians where those are, and they can attack them faster than the Russians can use them. Um, so, yeah. The, 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 does Russia know? Obviously, Russia has to know that we are doing that. And does that. Sure. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, this, everything becomes politics eventually rather than just uh, pure strategy. Does that uh, put us at greater risk of being drawn into uh, a ground war with Russia? Well, see, I think what it does is the, right now the Russian narrative is um, they're angry over all of the equipment we're given the the Ukrainians. And just now. Uh, uh, Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, announced that we're going to be giving them new artillery and 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 other heavy uh, heavy weaponry, and and the Russians obviously are very mad about that, and they say that you know this is this is they're we're engaging in war, and they could attack those uh, the delivery of those weapons. Where are they going to attack it if they attack it? In Poland, uh, that's pretty risky for them. But that really is angering them. But they, what they ought to really be angry about is the intelligence we're providing to the Ukrainians. Right. So the Russians, think about this. The Russians have a real problem with command of their forces, the deployed forces. Um they, they don't, unlike us, where we empower, you know, NCOs and lieutenants and captains to carry out decisions and to adapt locally, the Russians don't do that. They're like the old Red Army. You know, it's a top-down command structure. Okay, they give those orders. Things don't work out. So now what do they have to do? They move their generals to the forward edge of the battle. They got them right up there close, and the Ukrainians are picking them off. Now, how are they getting that information to pick them off? Right. So, so that's kind of they've, they've lost eight, two, or three star generals. Right. We lost one in twenty years of war in Afghanistan and Iraq. They've wow. lost eight in two months of war in Ukraine. So yeah, this is one of the things that, um, and I, I'd love to get your your take on this. Uh, you, I know it's kind of a side uh, tangent here, but right from the start, people were talking about this is going to be a quick win for for Russia. And when I had uh, General Zwack on here, we were, we were talking a little bit about people underestimate the size of Ukraine, forty four million or plus people, uh, as opposed to the size of Russia. And we kind of think of Russia having a population equal to the United States, but it doesn't. It's like one third of the United States or around that. So. Uh, uh, it, there was a foregone conclusion that this was going to be an easy war for Russia. Yeah. And I kept coming coming in and saying, there's no such thing as an easy war for anybody anymore. Yeah. This is going to be a prolonged thing. Do you have a sense of, of how prolonged this thing is going to be? Well, I think it's going to go for a while. And I think that all of our estimates about it, the war is going to be over early. And by the way, we had tried to convince Zelensky to leave Ukraine, we were going to get him out before they could get hold of him in the first week or two of the war. So what happened here? And um, I, I make the argument that the Russian army, you know what a Potumkin's village is. Yeah. Have you, you, you've heard of that. Yes. So, you know, I, I mean, just as a little background, um, it goes back to Catherine the Great, and she had this lover named Potumkin, and he kept sending sending her all these messages about how wonderful the conquests were in Crimea, and she wanted to see him. And she goes out to Crimea to see him, and he creates like a a, full, a, a Hollywood stage of a village that's movable. And as she goes by, she sees it. Then he moves it down the road and he sees it. She sees it again. It's called a Potumkin's village. I say that Russia had a Potumkin's army. It had a lot. It had, it made a, it had a nice storefront, new shiny tanks, new airplanes, new missiles. But what it didn't have were several things. 
First of all, it didn't have the logistical system to support that army. They, they didn't have the spare parts to replace parts. And they found that one of the most important things in deploying an army is you need a lot of trucks to move food and, and every, you know, hospital and everything. They found that their truck force was terrible maintenance. Now, how come they had terrible maintenance? How come they didn't have spare parts? How come they didn't have fuel? <laughs> Corruption. All right. Corruption. So, now, yeah. uh, no, you can, you can continue with that thought. I just, I have a question about what you just brought up, though, because if we go back to the Iraq War, uh, the the consensus, uh, and you'll know better this better than me, but most people in the United States, I think, would uh, who are under the same perception that I am that uh, Saddam was deluded about Iraq's capabilities. Is Putin uh, deluded about the, the Russia's Russia's capabilities and what you were just talking about? Did he he did what did he buy into his own facade? He bought the storefront. Yeah, <laughs> he he bought the 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 images of the shiny new weapons and the the missiles and all of that. But what he didn't know was that when you send soldiers into combat, they carry something called meals ready to eat. They're, they're prepackaged meals, right. right? And the ones that the Russian soldiers were carrying into battle in Ukraine had expired in 2015. Wow. Now, what, what, happened, how, what happened to all those funds to, to, you know, add new, get rid of the old ones, add new ones? Where, where, where'd all that go? Corruption. Black market, right? Yeah, cor well, corruption in the 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 the, the um, logistical system. Generals corrupt, suppliers corrupt. So is he uh, is he getting hip to the fact now that that he's been lied to about this stuff about the corruption and that his his army he's sending is not as prepared as he, he thought it was. You would think he's getting hip to it, but I don't know. It doesn't seem like it. Right. He, he's, he's, you know, going to keep using it. Now, what he's doing is he's not defeating the, the Ukrainian military. He's killing civilians and he's, he's destroying cities, but that's not going to win the war. You, you win the war by, by defeating the Ukrainian military, and they're losing to them. Well, uh, that, I'm glad you, you you said that because I'm under the opinion uh, of the opinion that, and obviously you're a billion times more educated in this stuff than I ever will be. But I'm of the opinion that even winning, be, defeating the military is not how you win the war. You cannot. And and you please correct me if I'm wrong on this because I've been saying it for three months now, constantly like a broken record. And if I'm wrong, I want to correct myself on it. But I, you cannot win a war anymore without winning the hearts and the minds of the people in the land. And so, even if they take the Ukraine as a piece of real estate, as long as the people are not Russians in their hearts and souls, you don't you haven't won the war. You're absolutely right. And just think about Iraq. So we went into Iraq spring of 2003, and, and we won the conventional war against Iraq in five weeks. Right. Right? Yeah. And we won. President Bush declared victory on that, that ship. Um, but what they didn't realize is that there's a war after the war. Right. And, and the war after the war was the insurrection and the insurgency and the the fact that the Iraqis, um, uh, many of them were happy to get rid of Saddam, but they weren't ready for America to occupy them. And, and so the big fight for us was trying to gain control over this insurgency and uh, you know the and al-qaeda in iraq and also the 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 fight 
with not just the, the Sunni um, uh, Al-Qaeda uh, elements, but also the Shia. So it was a mess. And it took us to 2008 to really get that situation under control. So four years. Right. And, you know, there was a time in 2006 where it looked like we were going to actually lose that war. Yeah. Well, did we, though? I mean, in the big picture now, it, was that a victory? Was it a stalemate? Or did we lose? Did we win? Yeah. See, it's it's what, what how you define winning. Right. I mean, I would say that, you know, at the fighting level, we call it the operational level. At the operational level of war, by 2009, we 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 were successful but the but the war is about politics it's not just about operations and the political context we were never able to to broker a a a, a government in which the different identities sunni shia kurds worked together and and we withdrew in 2011, which was a big mistake. We needed to keep a footprint there, keep Al-Qaeda down, train the Iraqi military, and from a, from a political strategy point of view, work with these different elements to try to build a political consensus that was going to take another five or ten years. Right. Um, so in the end, how, and because you say we should have kept uh, a footprint there, how big a footprint and for how long? Not big. You know, we're not talking about thousands and thousands of people. Well, here's what you needed. First, you needed to keep the guys I worked with, JSOC, Special Forces, to, to keep Al-Qaeda on its back. Avril McRaven, Bill McRaven, who commanded after um, uh, General McChrystal, the, the task force I write about, Task Force 714, Admiral McRaven said, I had my foot squarely on its throat and I needed to keep it there. So you needed that element. Then you needed military advisors to work with the modernization and training of the Iraqi military. So we're talking about maybe three or 4,000 at the most. You needed a big diplomatic element for the, the political things that I talked about. And you needed to maintain um, a supply line of, of equipment and help with rebuilding some of the things that we destroyed. But we're not talking about a big effort. This is not... The, this is not um, uh, a, you know, hundreds of thousands of troops, less than 5,000. Okay. Uh, part of, and I'm going to probably turn this whole discussion on its head, and hopefully I don't, but uh, the part of this is I feel like you and, and your analysis is based here looking outward at the rest of the world, but we have problems uh, and I think part of it is in intelligence and part of it is uh, misinformation that's coming in, dividing America. And, and so the political will to keep those those that footprint in Iraq uh, was kind of eroded from the outside in. Uh, do, 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 do you agree with that part of it, that part of yeah. the American people are not are, are not willing to kind of go along with anything that has to do with keeping a footprint in the Middle East at this point. Well, maybe at this point, but 2008, 2009? 2011. Yeah. Um, no, we could, it, it wouldn't have even been noticeable. I mean, we have more forces, to, we have 10 times at that time, we had 20 times that number or more deployed in Europe. And in in South Korea, we had six times, seven times that. So this was really very small. Right. Okay. But I do agree with you that if we come to the the you know more recent time, so you know, the 2010s and especially 
from 2015 forward, then we do have this problem that you talk about. And, right. and, and that's the Russian disinformation and political warfare that they well, conducted. Well, they, earlier you mentioned China, and I'm, I'm wondering, are they also, I mean, obviously it's easy to say Russia is behind all of this, but is China, China in some way, uh, obviously they would benefit from, from all the uh, divisiveness, political divisiveness that's going on in the U.S. Uh, they definitely have something to gain. Are they a, a player in this or not? They're, they're a player. But the big player in the disinformation space, you know, in the use of all these new information tools is Russia. Okay. Now, is it, does the misinformation and te- intelligence gathering is also, I think, not necessarily confined to the state anymore, right? Uh, we have rogue groups and people and hackers and and people like that, and misinformation also uh, not necessarily confined to the state. So, is all this stuff contingent on uh, nations, or or are there rogue players within those nations that that are behind some of this stuff as well? There are elements that are non-state in those. In Russia, for instance, um, but they're really owned by the, the 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 what's now the 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 um, the replacement for the the KGB. So they they create these organizations that are nominally independent. They see they, but they're not, and um, and they use them uh, in election operations in political warfare operations so it, it's pretty sophisticated they're, they're actually if if in the Cold War the one of the 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 advantages that the Soviets had was um, their ability their, their intelligence capabilities KGB um, GRU and um, they they have maintained that kind of competency by modernizing the, the the successors to those organizations, but they're but they they have a legacy to draw on. So this is their this is where they're good. Now we we need to do a better job um, of unmasking all of this. The the, um, the the Office of National Intelligence, the ODNI, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, after 2016 election, did a very in, important study that they declassified that that gives um, a pretty good layout of how the um, uh, the, the Russian in, Russian intelligence was using uh, disinformation, uh, political warfare operations uh, during the 2016 election. Um, so that election operations are not new for, for Russian intelligence. The Soviets used to conduct election operations. But what's new now is the tools that you can use to do this. So, for example, in areas where there were um, where there was a, 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 a real close competition for who was going to win in, 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 in that particular part, let's say in a state. So what the Russians would do would they, they would create false political groups um, that would then take part in the political discourse virtually in those areas, to try to influence the election. Um, They're very good at this. Uh, But the best way to deal with it is to unmask it and make us all aware of what they're doing. All aware of what they're doing. Now, this is is part of, I think, what I see on social media is constantly where I think we're hyper aware of what we're doing to the point where, and I'm not sure that what the public perceives about this is all as important as it does. The Pentagon really is relying on accurate data. But when I see, 
Yeah, like on social media, people doubting uh, the Russian atrocities and that they're really uh, killing civilians and, and raping women and all this stuff. And they're saying uh, they're pulling up pictures and saying, "Look how their bodies are laid out too symmetrically. It's all fake for for the news." And we're seeing that constantly. Does that any of that matter? That what the public thinks or not? Well, I think it matters, um, but I, I I do think that um, one of the things that that the the Russians understand is that the more that you can create a um, uh, questions about information, um, you can use that uh, to your advantage. So um, it, the, the political warfare arena is, is one that's so different from the one I learned in the Cold War because of social media and, and all of the different platforms uh, and, and so on. Although uh, here uh, in in the West, um, government can and 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 citizen groups can can expose um, the, the these activities because all of this is what's called today open source intelligence. It's all anyone can can collect it, analyze it, dissect it, and so on. Um, where where um, where the Russians are able to control the narrative is in Russia, and that is um, that they're doing pretty well because you know you have um, the children of a Russian family who live in the Ukraine and they're telling their parents or their family all these awful things that are happening and the parents in Russia don't believe them because they're watching Russian TV, which right. is all orchestrated by the, the, by Putin government and their information ministry. So it's, that's really, that's a hard one. Yeah, it's a tough, it's, it's, and, but what confuses me, I do a morning show every day of the week, Friday, Monday through Friday, and I have people on a Russian network, the VK uh, streaming network. I have people from Russia coming in and seeing, and I also have people from Ukraine commenting and, and joining the program, but it's almost as if they're oblivious to because it's not a political show the morning show is uh it's it's all like it's like a morning radio show it's it's basically uh light but they want to talk about do am i a fan of the beatles and it's like do you understand that your nation is right uh, russian people asking me if i'm a fan of the beatles like do you have any clue about what's going on and, and even though i'm talking about it there, there's no response to that at all it just seems like they've been and it's it, not being there. It's just so hard to get into that mindset. But it seems like they've been uh, programmed to not care, not even want, not even be curious about it. Uh, Maybe, yeah. but for sure, they they are not able to take take advantage of the marketplace of information, right? Because that marketplace is shut off to them. And and the, and and so the information they get is state controlled. Right. Um, uh, I, this is again maybe an inappropriate question. I don't know. Are you an optimist for for the, any kind of positive endgame, or does all this? Because it sounds like what you're laying out here is for a state of uh, endless war, at least uh, an endless cold war a semi-warm war, an intelligence, a new kind of Cold War that we're doomed for for this for eternity here on planet Earth. I know that sounds like the darkest, pessimistic uh, interpretation of what I'm hearing from you, but... Yeah, no, I, I go to dark places sometimes. Um, so I would say that if we... if Let's work from inside out. So the, the, the fight in the Ukraine... Um, I think that that there will be some kind of a, of a of negotiated settlement of it, and 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 it's going to really, uh, and it may, and I think the Russians are going to be the loser in that because I don't think that they can sustain this kind of effort. Do, do you know that that in two months, if you take their 
killed, wounded, um, deserted, captured. The number is 40,000. Wow, that's uh, that's 18,000 shy of everything we lost in Vietnam in 20 years. <laughs> 40,000 in two months. Wow. Killed, wounded, captured, missing, on the lam, desert, wow. desertion. They have desertion issues. Right. So if you lost that in two months... Now, you deployed a force of 150,000, and you got 40,000? This is, they can't sustain this. Yeah, uh, but they can't sustain it for 10, 20 years, but they can definitely sustain it for a couple of years, right? Well, I don't know. I, I don't know about that. Because they're also, they also have a problem of replenishment. So they've lost a lot of tanks. And they have tanks that they need to repair. They can't build new tanks because they're not getting the kind of parts and components they need from outside Russia because of the sanctions. So their main tank building and tank repair facilities are shutting down. So I don't know that they can that, that they could manage this for a year or two hmm. you know, i'm wondering can they continue this to july wow well uh, that's hard for me to believe but i i you know again i, I defer to your education and, and expertise in this uh but it's hard for me to believe that because we've and I think the notion of superpower, it, it, we've, we've deluded ourselves into thinking that, you know, what that really means super. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and that's why I, I, I find that a little bit uh, tough to, to really. Well, let's think, but think about this for a second. So they have deployed in two months. They've lost 40,000. They've lost a large number of tanks, armored personnel carriers and so on. And they're using up large inventories of artillery and missiles and so on, blowing up apartment buildings. Okay. Now, what, um, and they can't resupply that. So, so they're not able to, to resupply. So Lloyd Austin and, uh, has said that, and, and other Knowledgeable flag officers think that Russia can lose this war. And I, I could see that. And, and, they can, and, and if, if they can't, if they've lost this in two months, and now we have May and June, and they lose more, and they're going to lose more because we're giving the Ukrainians things that they didn't have when they force these losses in the two previous months that we've just been through. So now the Ukrainians are going to have more lethal capabilities to use against the Russian forces, which, by the way, are going to be out in the open because, you know, they're trying to take this rump part of, of Ukraine called the Donbass. Uh, um, well, so I don't know. I mean, right. I can, I'm yeah. gonna. I see your Red Sox uh, jersey behind you. And um, I, know, I know you can understand this because <laughs> uh, uh, what you're saying to they can't sustain it at this rate. And uh, I come back to something I saw on Twitter before a Met fan was claiming, "Well, at this, if the Mets keep it up at this rate, they're going to be 117 and 45 at the yeah. end of the year." And I was like, "That's at this rate. It's April, man. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a long season." So I could, I, I could understand. Yeah, I could see where somebody said Russia might lose this war, but the re rate of loss is not going to necessarily stay the same. Uh, and the ability to 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 go for a long losing season before they actually realize uh, time to cut bait and run. Uh, I want you to imagine that it could get worse. It could get worse. It so. could get worse for the Russians. 
depending on what we're giving the Ukrainians, because we're we're upping their game. Right. We're now, arming them with more lethal capabilities. Right. Now, from, from what, intelligence. You, what you just laid out was tactical loss. But also accumulating that loss also puts them at a disadvantage in the intelligence uh, gathering and analysis. There does does it not, or am I just uh, probably assuming too much that because every nation really does have finite resources uh, available at some on some level. I mean, you, we're not you can print money, but you, it's, at some point you just don't have enough to spread yourself that thin. And so all the money that there and all the economic loss and tactical loss that, that is going into fighting this war uh, is reducing in my mind, at least their ability to conduct uh, intelligence on the same level and, and bring their artificial intelligence for it. Yeah. They're losing the intelligence war. They are. And, and I'll give you a, some a couple examples of how they're losing it. They're they're not able to. We're we're able to tell the Ukrainians when the Russians have have used their intelligence to target them. We're we're telling them uh, that before the Russians can deliver the blow, and so the Russians are cratering a lot of open fields in the Ukraine where missile forces and artillery forces were an hour or two ago. Wow. Yeah. Um, so yeah. N- now we're sitting on the, on the sidelines of this, but not really on the sidelines. We're an active uh, cheerleader, I guess you could say, and, and, uh, and contributing, but not with ground forces or any of that kind of stuff yet. But China, you mentioned them before. Are they... Are they involved in any significant way at all? And if not, are they the big winner here? Because they're not, they're not, if they're not involved at all, they're not putting any resources so at this. They can dedicate all their energy and, and time to artificial intelligence, increasing their intelligence capability. I, you know, the, the Chinese are, uh, on the one hand, um, you know, they don't have a lot of allies. And and one of their most important allies was China, was Russia. Right. Now, now Russia is, when this is over, um, what, what um, Austin said yesterday, the De- Secretary of Defense, was that we're going to, put Russia in a state of affairs where they can't do these sorts of things again. Now, you know, what's that mean? Yeah. See, what's it mean? And and so what I'm thinking is what it means is that, first of all, um, we're going to redeploy to Europe and we are going to have forward defense right up to the forward edge. Uh, uh, so we're going to deploy military force that 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 Russia will, will will not be able to challenge. Then we're going to do we're going to I, I this is a term I like to use. We're going to pariahize Russia. And what I mean by that is that for what they've done in Ukraine, including war crimes, we are going to isolate them and punish them. And one of the ways we'll do it is by closing off the markets for their their energy. And that is the only thing that they have that really sustains that economy. So Austin is, when I see Austin use these kind of terms, I try to imagine what what this will look like. And that's kind of what I'm thinking. I may be wrong, but that's what I'm thinking. It sounds like you're right. I mean, when I heard that yesterday, I thought the same thing. But isn't is there some danger in making Russia too weak? Well, there's a danger in all of this in that dictators um, can, you know, can can do things that we we 
they can cross thresholds that are very dangerous. Right. That's a, uh, and and this guy could could you know if he sees that he's he's losing in Ukraine, he might go nuclear, tactical. So that that's a big danger. That um, you corner a dictator, and um, you know they can lash out, do something crazy right um very destructive now and i don't you know i don't know what their command and control system is you know and here if you remember there was all this brouhaha about president trump getting up on the wrong side of the bed and deciding to push the button and and get rid of you know north korea but but he can't do that you know he can he can give the signal to launch, but it has to go through a, 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 a chain of, of command before it's launched. Right. Um, and the hope is that somebody, some sane person along the way would, would say, just refuse to take the order. Uh, and that's, now, not, that's not true in Russia. Yeah. <laughs> not true in Russia. Right. No, um, we don't know. Well, that's scary to even hear you say that. Uh, but I kind of knew that was true all along. But to hear you say that makes it even scarier. Um, but and and the deal with here's the thing that because you bring up Trump and even though there was that he's he's a loose cannon, you never know what he's going to say. Even he would never say. Or I, I don't think he ever said if they get out of hand, we're just going to drop. We're, we're going to engage nuclear war with yeah. them. And and Putin did come out and say that if if Sweden and Finland joined NATO, uh, he was going to start a nuclear war. I mean, not exact those words, but it pretty much close enough. See, it, it, what Putin has managed to do would have been, is incomprehensible. He's managed to drive Finland into NATO. And Sweden into NATO. I mean, it's it's hard to imagine how he could have gotten things more wrong than he's gotten there. Right. So now, why is that? And and I think it's because he's isolated. See, one of the th- problems with dictators is that that they they can self isolate, and 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 no one will tell them bad news. Right. Um, you know, no one told him, boss, it looks like a good army, but it, it it's not going to run well when you put it in the field because it has all these logistic problems and command and control problems. And, you know, boss, you're deploying troops that don't even know they're going to war. There, there are a lot of problems here, boss. Yeah. Doing. I but, I. I hear what you're saying, and I do think, uh, you know, my perception just from watching from 3,000 miles away or uh, 6,000 miles away as a layperson, uh, just he seems more than isolated. He seemed paranoid isolated to the point where he doesn't even let people within 30 feet of his most trusted people within 30 feet of him in a room ever. And he's holding on to furniture like like it's his, a security blanket at all times. He doesn't seem like a stable person. This is. Uh, yeah. He's a germaphobe to begin with. Right. So the, the the question that, that that begs, and I asked General Zwack this, and he didn't seem it was all very likely at all. Is there, in your mind, any likelihood that Russia replaces him or it sees, that, sees that he's just incompetent or crazy and just needs to be removed? See, what in, in dictatorships, the first order of business for the dictator is to coup-proof himself. And and they have all kinds of methodologies for doing that. See, so um, it's not easy to do. It's not easy to do. Yeah, well, well, was, Hitler was hard to kill. We know that. But well, and, and and you know, look how many, you know if you think about it, Saddam, Assad, they they all coup proof themselves. Right. So they the, those that are in uh, close to them. Um, they they own them. They right. do it in different ways. They play play them off against one another. But they they have a, a system for holding on to power. Right. 
Well, uh, it's been a really compelling and um, interesting conversation. I think I'm a little more nervous after talking to you than I was before talking to you. The book is called uh, Transforming U.S. Intelligence for uh, Irregular War. And we didn't even really define exactly what a regular war means at this point, because irregular war is kind of constantly changing, too, now. Uh, but uh, so, uh, I ordered it today. Looking forward to reading it. I urge other people, if they find this uh, subject matter um, compelling, uh, to, to get it and read it. And I, and I look forward to it. Maybe uh, we can have you back after I have a good read of it and, and kind of go through it. Yeah, hey, this was fun. Are you are you working on uh, follow up to this or uh, and yeah it's this um, this study I've done on um, uh, on how artificial intelligence is going to um, revolutionize uh, military operations yeah that that's something I'm also very interested in. I've had so many conversations about uh, artificial intelligence from so-called experts, people who've been involved in the field and different uh, perspectives on what it actually means. Uh, all this stuff is so confusing to the layperson, but I appreciate you trying to, to make it a little well, bit. You know, what I did was I embedded with the unit in the Pentagon that was developing algorithms for um, counterterrorism operations, and and so I've seen how that process, how hard it is to do it. It's not easy to develop that kind of capability, but how they developed it for the counterterrorism fight, and now how it's transitioning for the conventional fight against the peer competitors, China and Russia. Wow. Uh, well, I look forward to, uh, to to your future work, and and hopefully we can we can speak again. Thank you for coming. Thank you for enlightening me and my audience on this stuff. Um, uh, so then, be well. Bye for now. Yeah, and you be well. I hope that uh, that clears up for you fast. Yeah, it has to by this weekend. I got I got work this weekend. <laughs> All right, you take care. Thanks. Be well, and uh, go Red Sox. <laughs> uh, Dr. Richard Sultz, folks, I uh, hope you found that interesting. Uh, I wanted to uh, kind of just uh, play some baseball, uh, bust the chops a little bit about Mets, Mets and Yankees versus Red Sox stuff. Maybe maybe next time. <laughs> anyway, um, you know, what's your take on that? Write to me. Let me know your thoughts, questions, comments. A um, little more nervous after hearing him speak than, than I was before. Uh, hearing him speak. I'll be with you tomorrow uh, with coffee, uh, coffee with the dog at 9 a.m. By the way, in case you don't know, we are moving the show over to the Govs Comedy uh, Network, Govs Comedy Clubs, uh, a um, comedy club staple here on Long Island uh, and a home of many comedy clubs here on Long Island. Uh, we will be moving to their network starting May 2nd, which is Monday. Uh, and so I'm a little bit behind the eight ball, uh, <laughs> man, I'm, I'm really shot for it. Don't, don't, don't mind uh, some of the words that are coming out of my mouth. I don't even understand. George Rosales will be with me tomorrow morning uh, at a, uh, somewhere in Texas, West Texas. Well, just West Texas. So join me then for a coffee with the dog. Till then, I'm Matt Napo for the Mind Dog TV podcast. Thanks for coming. Have a great rest of your night, and bye for now.
to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me now. 